good to see all of you here this morning. I'm Tommy Brown. I'm the pastor for spiritual and community formation. My former title before I changed it without asking anybody was the pastor for spiritual formation and community life. It was just too long, so I shortened it a little bit. It's still too long. And my former boss pointed out to me, my former title was executive director of account management and planning when I worked in university life. He said, you know, the longer the title, the less important the position. You think about that, like in university life, president, one word, okay? Pastor, one word. I am the pastor for spiritual formation and community life, which means like Pinocchio, one day I'll be a real pastor whenever I, no, I'm just kidding. It's my honor, my privilege. Have you noticed that the voice for Pinocchio is the same as the voice for Mickey Mouse? You'll never be able to listen to Pinocchio or Mickey Mouse the same way. None of this is in the notes. We're going to get right into it, though, because it's a good idea to get right into it. Some of you are nodding your head going, yes, stupid, that would be a good idea to get right into it. Well, um, I was out for a slow jog this week, which is what you do when you're 41 and skinny fat like I am. Uh, It's somewhere between like a fast walk and an actual jog. It's a slow jog. And so uh, I was listening to the Bible because sometimes uh, sitting down and reading the Bible just won't work some mornings. And so I, you know, put it on my arm and I run through my little subdivision and I listen to the Bible. And as you run past people like listening to the book of Leviticus, sometimes it gets a little strange talking about earwax and other things. Uh, And you just run faster at those points in time. But I was listening to 1 Samuel this week, which uh, gets a little bloody at moments. They hack some people up. And, uh, but before they started hacking people, they were trying to figure out who's going to be our king. Why do they want a king? Because everybody else had a king, so we need a king. We need a king like everybody else has a king. And Samuel's like, you're going to get a king, but you're not going to like what you get. And so he uh, calls for this one tribe and then this one clan and then this one guy. And he looks very much like a king would look. Like this is the type of guy that you would want representing you like at the United Nations or something like that. He's tall. He's handsome. He has all of the trappings of being a king. And so they uh, call for this guy and they're like, uh, anybody seen Saul? And they start looking around for Saul and they don't see Saul anywhere. And they look a little harder. They don't see him. And then finally he goes, he's over here. It's like some middle schooler that found him. Doubtless. It's not in the biblical text, but no doubt it was a middle schooler who knew exactly where he was. He's right over here. They're like, what is he doing in the baggage? Why is Saul hiding in the baggage? And their next question was, should have been, is there a psychotherapist around? Because we need to do a full workup on this guy before we anoint him as king. Because for the rest of his days, King Saul was hiding behind the baggage. In fact, at one point, God chose to point that out to him. He's like, Saul, you might be just a little guy in your own eyes, but newsflash, pal, you're the king of Israel. So Saul was this, uh, we'll say a small man in a grown man's body. He was a small man with a grown man's calling. He was a wee little guy on the inside with a great big destiny. And Saul lived the rest of his life with this giant ego being a small man trapped in a big man's calling. And it ruined his life, frankly. Ruined his life. It made him paranoid, made him jealous, made him want to kill David. And so he actually threw some spears at David's head one time. Thankfully, he was horrible with his aim and he didn't kill him. And David, you know, I guess he was a little guy at one point in time too, whenever he killed Goliath. Remember that? Took a stone, put it in his little sling, threw it, hit the guy in the head, sunk into his forehead, walked over there, grabbed the giant's sword because he didn't have one of his own and sawed off his head and then took the head and ran throughout the village. He's like, I got the guy's head. Let's go kick these guys' butts. And they did. 
You see, David was also a little guy, but David knew that his strength come from the Lord. So you can be, maybe be small in your own eyes as long as you know where your strength comes from, but Saul didn't seem to know that. So he's constantly managing his own appearance. He's constantly paranoid. Saul, crushed under the weight of his own baggage. And I think that today's headlines are no less littered with the lives and trappings and damage of men like me, who uh, at some points in their lives have been small men living in big men responsibilities. We all blow it. Newsflash disclaimer right from the get-go. I'll just say this as I preach on Father's Day. First time I've ever preached on a Father's Day in my entire life. Um, I've never preached an Easter Sunday morning. I'm going to do one of those one day too. I'm going to wake up on like Easter sunrise, Easter Sunday morning. I'm just going to preach a message right into my phone and be like, there, I did it. I can die now. And so... Uh, what was I talking about? Saul something. Headlines. Yes. I don't have it all together. Ask my shrink. I do not have it all together. Ask my wife. I don't have it all together. Ask me. If you know me, if you're friends with me, if you're actually really close to me, you know that guy's got issues. But see, I'm trying to manage my issues in the presence of Christ and with the work of the Holy Spirit so that I don't end up crushed under the weight of my own calling. Why? Because uh, every day I walk in my door and I've got six eyeballs staring at me. And they count on me. And I've got a, a church that sometimes gets to hear me teach. So I don't, I, I, I don't have the luxury of not working on my junk, okay? I don't have the luxury of, of not shouldering the weight of my responsibility. Why? Because I'm a man. Well, that's gender biased. Why? Because you're a woman. And we all have to shoulder the weight of our responsibility, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman. Even though this is a Father's Day message, I'm going to speak a little bit to the guys today. I think it's for everybody that God calls us to receive our identity from him so that we can shoulder the weight of our responsibility. I think that a lot of us numb out and check out, myself included. And instead of facing the hard things, we just kind of run from it. See, I'm addicted to pixels like the rest of you, right? It's like, what's a pixel? Not Pixar, pixels. You see, when I want to numb out, I just grab a little bit. I just take a couple of dopamine hits. Y'all do that too, right? You come in, you're tired, you work hard, and you don't just want to, just like, and you go there. I think that sometimes it's easy to escape. It's a lot easier to escape than what it is to just face the responsibilities of life. And on Father's Day, it either goes one of two ways. The preacher will do one of two things, generally speaking. Generally speaking, not all preachers. Not whoever preached here last Father's Day, which I assume was Pastor Phil. But one of two things generally happens. You go the attributional leadership route. I have a master's degree in management. I paid a lot of money to say those words. Attributional leadership theory says, here's a list of attributes that competent leaders have. You should embody these attributes, and then you will be a competent leader too. So selflessness, humility, vision, whatever. Attributional leadership theory. Here are seven qualities of what it means to be a great dad. Go forth and do likewise. You've forgotten all of them by the time you're flipping your steak over, right? You went to church and you feel better about yourself. The other end of things is you walk into church and then the preacher's job is he's like, I know that seven qualities isn't going to help these guys. They need like 40 qualities and, you know, I can't get them all out right now. So let's just make them feel better. Everybody grunt. Man, testosterone. You're great. Go. Have a great life. How many of you know that the attributional theory of leadership, just telling you a bunch of things to go and do, isn't going to help you? On the other end, making you feel better about yourself when you actually suck isn't going to make you feel much better anyhow. Because you know, like, I've got baggage. I've got baggage. Yeah, I've got baggage. 
And so I want to go a third route. I want to go maybe the transformational route a little bit. The transformational route is about where you receive your strength from something that's a little higher than what you are. And so I want to talk about receiving your identity from God and therefore being able to shoulder the weight of the responsibility that we're called to. And this, for me, is the most important thing I can do as a father, as a husband, as a man. I can receive my identity from God and then live my life as though Jesus were living my life. You remember those WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? Never helped me much. Didn't stop me from sinning at all. I would just look at it and be like, well, okay. I'm not Jesus. I don't have the beard for it, right? I'm not Jesus. I know what Jesus would do. He would just raise somebody from the dead or multiply fish and loaves. I don't have those powers yet, although I'm working on it. The force is moderately strong with this one. But for me, what I'm trying to do is ask the question, what would Jesus do if he were me? That's maybe a better question. Not what would Jesus do. What would Jesus do if he were married to my wife? What would Jesus do if he were parenting my son, my daughter? What would Jesus do if he were standing up here right now? Tell fewer bad jokes. And so... Thank you. There's this moment at the end of John's gospel when the narrator says a few things. And there's this passing comment in there. Now Jesus, it says in John chapter 20, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then he follows it up with this. Now there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The stories that we have from John are not all the things that Jesus said and did. You know that, right? Like, he just cherry-picked. And why did he cherry-pick? He cherry-picked them because he's like, these are the ones that you need in order to believe. But know this, all the things that Jesus said and all the things that Jesus did are not written down. See, I have a dad. And uh, he was actually sitting in the first service this morning. And if I were to write down all the things that my dad said and did, I'd fill up all the journals in the world. But I don't do that, right? I remember some things and some things I forget. One of the things I remember that my dad often says, and maybe your dad says it as well, it's better to have it not need it than to need it and not have it. Did your dad say that? I heard an amen. Yeah. It's like from the book of Proverbs, only it's not. But Calvin's dad says it. It's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. It's also one of the three symptoms of having a hoarding disorder, in case you were wondering about that. I actually looked them up. The, uh, there are two other symptoms. I'll fill you in on what the other ones are. My dad also, whenever we go fishing, he'll say, he's really wise on this. He'll say, he'll say son, either they're going to be biting or they ain't. I know. Sometimes the things that I remember about my dad are humorous, too. Like last year, I won tickets to go to the Masters. The odds are slim to none, and Slim just left town. You can't win these tickets, right? And so I actually won. You can't like, just go out and buy them legally. Uh, I actually won four tickets to Tuesday's practice round at the Masters. I know. And so I got them in the mail. I thought, who am I going to take with me? So I thought, well, take, take my friend, take my brother. We'll take my dad. And so my friend said, well, I'll pay for the hotel room. Hotel rooms in Augusta National, in Augusta for a national uh, week, for Masters Week, uh, $1,000 at the Marriott for one night, turns out. Yeah. Yeah, I paid for the tickets. Those were $75 a piece. So you win them, then you have to pay for them. So 300 bucks, right? And then the other two guys came and, and had fun, and it was cool. 
And so got to the hotel room, walked inside for $1,000 a night. You know, I was thinking like full suite. And it was sweet, but it was just like a queen-size bed and a couch. And so my brother being the six-foot-seven monstrosity of a man that he is, we thought we should give him the bed, but I won the ticket. So you're going to get like a mattress on the floor. He's hanging his feet off of him, you know, laying there. And the other guy who actually paid for the room, uh, we cast lots, and he got the couch. And so here it's my father and I on this queen-size bed. This was before my dad was thoroughly convinced that he needed a CPAP machine, okay? The man, what comes out of the interior caverns of this man, it's like, it's like Johnny Cash, you know, just, just this deep baritone growling, roaring snore. I'm laying beside him after being awakened several times. Everybody else is still up. I fell asleep. I kept getting awakened. And after about about three or four times of getting awakened after the course of, you know, a good, good, good bit of time, I, I turned to them. I said, um, you know, I could kill him with this pillow right now. I could kill him. I could suffocate him with this pillow right now. I could smother him, and uh, he'd be dead, but we'd get a good night's sleep. I thought about it. I thought about killing my father. Um, and instead of killing my father, uh, we let it go on for a little while, and then I turned to my friends, and I said, guys, uh, I didn't know that, I didn't know it was $1,000 at that point in time. Uh, I, I said, guys, you know, how much is this? And he's like, it was 1000 bucks." I was like, we could go in together and get another room, okay? So I called the front desk. I said, uh, yes, Mr. Brown, room 248, um, I'd like to get another room. She says, sir, this is master's week. We've been sold out for months. I said, ma'am, do you know how dire the situation is? Tomorrow's the biggest day of my life, next to my marriage, my wedding day. Tomorrow's the biggest day of my life. And I'm going to be just walking zombie because I'm not going to get any sleep. Sir, I can't help you. you, you can, I was like, can I sleep on the couch downstairs? They're like, that security will come and get you, sir. You're not allowed to sleep. I thought about sleeping in the truck. I was like, ma'am, do you understand the gravity of this situation? And I take the phone and I put it by my, bad, my dad's mouth. I said, listen to this. <laughs> she says, sir, I hear what you're talking about. We still don't have any more rooms. I said, ma'am, if there is a dead body in room 248 tomorrow morning, you don't even have to wonder what happened. I, Thomas Blaine Brown, hereby confess that I murdered my father with a pillow. He's dead because he snored all daggum night. And then he had the audacity to wake up in the morning and to just be chipper about the whole thing. How'd you sleep, boys? Ha, 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 ha. Wanted to suffocate him. So I didn't kill him, though. But even with all that wisdom to draw upon, I'll say this. I didn't learn to be a man by walking around with a little Molstein journal and jotting man quotes from my dad. I think whatever level of a man I am, I picked it up by osmosis. I picked it up by watching my dad get up when everybody else was asleep and go to work. I think I picked it up watching my dad go out on call when he worked for Chelco in the middle of a lightning storm. I think I picked it up watching my dad bait everybody else's hook and take off everybody else's catfish. Father's Day last year, I got him a catfish bat. He never had to touch another catfish again. That's, I'm just joking. We don't kill catfish. Um, those of you who caught catfish would know the use of the catfish bat, though. Hypothetically speaking, were there to be one. Uh, but at any rate, I think I picked it up more by osmosis than by just jotting down notes. And that's transformation. When you're around somebody to the point that one day you start opening your mouth and your dad falls out. I think that a lot of it, you just kind of acquire over time. And if I were to write down everything my dad said and did and what he means to me, what he taught me to be a man, I suppose that there wouldn't be enough bookshelves in my house to contain it. And if you ask him, he'd say, yeah, I've got all kinds of shortcomings. And sometimes shouldering the weight of his responsibility drives him to his knees. 
But at the end of it all, I suppose, too, that that's not such a bad place for a godly man to be either. See, there's this one story in John's gospel, so we know it's an important one. And Jesus is having his final meal with his disciples, and it says that he knows the hour has come for him to depart from the world and to return to the Father. And it says that he loved them to the end, which doesn't necessarily mean just to the end of his life. It's kind of like, I love you to the moon and back. I love you as much as I can love you. I tell us, so to the full extent. And the writer tells us one of these really important moments that should help us believe. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's a powerful little phrase. Knowing that all things had been given into his hands by the Father, knowing that he had come from God and knowing that he's returning to God, he stands up, takes off his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist and begins to wash the disciples' feet. This wasn't the way that a rabbi acted. You know that, right? It's not the way the most important person in the room acts. It isn't the way a leader acts. It isn't the way that a manly man acts. But it says that Jesus, whenever he had realized and understood fully that the Father had given all things into his hands and he had come from God and was returning to God, stood up, took off his outer garments, tied a towel around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. You see, Jesus wasn't big on keeping up appearances. The reason that Jesus could take off his outer garments is he wasn't hiding behind his baggage. The reason that Jesus could take off his outer garments is that he wasn't trapped by his little ego. The reason that Jesus could stand up from supper and take off his outer garments is because he wasn't hiding behind appearances. You see, oftentimes, the more that people flex, the more insecure they are. The more that they posture, the more insecure they are. But Jesus wasn't insecure. Jesus was so secure that he didn't have to be a manly man, whatever in the heck that means. Jesus was so secure that he could stand up from table and take off his outer garments and begin to wash their feet. He was so secure in who he was that he could take on the role of a servant. Why? Because he wasn't trapped in his own little ego. He wasn't receiving his approval from the people around the room. He wasn't feeding off of them in order to make himself feel better about himself. Why could Jesus stand up from the table and take off his outer garments and tie a towel around his waist and wash their feet? Because that little throwaway line in Jesus, knowing that the Father had put all things under his hands, knowing where he had come from and knowing where he was going. You see, when you know where you've come from and you know where you're going, then it doesn't matter what stands before you. You can do the work that needs to be done. You can shoulder the weight of the responsibility because you know where you've come from and you know where you're going. And there's a lot of people out there that run from the responsibility because they don't know where they've come from and they don't know where they're going. Because nobody ever looked him in the eye and said, you are enough. You are enough. Instead, they put him down. They thought they would make him into a man by beating him. 
They put him down. They thought they'd make him into a man by shaming him. They put him down. They thought they'd make him into a man by showing him enlisted images. This is what it means to be a man. No, you don't have to hide behind those garments. You don't have to hide behind that baggage. Why? Because if you know where you've come from and you know where you're going, you can stand up from the table and take off your outer garments and tie a towel around your waist and wash the feet of your family and wash the feet of your coworkers, no matter how many stripes you have on your uniform. You can actually wash the feet of the people that you're arresting and you don't have to abuse power over them. Because you know where you've come from and you know where you're going. And the reason Jesus knew where he came from and where he was going is because there's another time in the Gospel of Matthew, right around chapter 3, where Jesus goes to be baptized and he stands in the long line of sinners. And he stands in the long line of sinners at the lowest place on earth. And it's at the lowest place on earth because it's the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is the place where God's people cross from one point in their story into the new point in their story. It's where they cross from being wandering people and slaves into being free people in God's promised land. You see, it's not just the lowest place on earth at 10,000 feet below sea level. It's also the place of new beginnings. And it's right there that Jesus stands in the long line of sinners waiting to be baptized at the hands of John the Baptist. And he finally gets to John and he looks him in the eyes and John says, Jesus, I, I, I can't baptize you much like Peter at the last supper says, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, we're going all the way. I'm doing this in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then John takes him in his arms and dunks him in the Jordan River. And as he comes up, the sky is open and you see a dove descending that's representative of the Holy Spirit. And then he hears the words of his father say, this is my son, my beloved. With him, I am well pleased. And one day at the Last Supper, after Jesus had now gone into desert temptation and then gone into ministry and then faced false accusations, before his death, all of a sudden, he finds himself at a table. And I think that it's in many ways a book into another moment to where when Jesus rises at the Last Supper in order to wash feet, there was a time where Jesus rose up out of the Jordan River and was dripping wet with the waters of that rushing river and the affirmation of God's word upon his heart. You see, until he goes down into the Jordan and comes up and hears the life-giving, affirming words of his heavenly Father, he can't stand from that moment at the table and take off his outer garments and wrap a towel around his waist and begin to wash others' feet because he wouldn't have the confidence to do it unless he had heard the affirming words of his father. That's why the words of a father matter. That's why fathers have to speak good words over their children. That's why I look at that nine-year-old young man right there and say, you're a good man. You're going to do great. You have what it takes. Even though I know that there'll be times where he'll fall short, even if he breaks my heart, there's nothing that he could ever do that would take back the way that I feel about him and who I know he is at his core. Now, some of you had dads who were less than remarkable. Some of you had dads who never said the good words of God over your life. I'm here to tell you I'm sorry that that happened, but there is one who sees you, who knows you, who, who views into the deepest part of who you are. And he says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, I am pleased with you. So you never have to wonder where you've come from and where you're going. Maybe you're from somewhere in Detroit and you're not sure where you're going to end up. Maybe you've been born and bred and raised right here in Niceville, Florida for your entire life. And you're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to anywhere. You are going somewhere and it's not about geography. It's about destiny. 
If you understand who you've been sent by and where you're going, which is returning to the Father, the spaces in between are just opportunities for you to receive your identity from Christ and to wash the feet of the world with the power of a towel rather than the power of a sword in order to help them understand that their Heavenly Father loves them and accepts them and forgives them just like they are. At that moment at the Last Supper, Jesus, knowing where he had come from, and where he was going, took off his outer garments and wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash their feet. Perhaps you say, man, you think Saul had baggage? Bro, I got baggage. Like Saul's hiding in his baggage. Like I, I'm hiding in my baggage, your baggage, everybody else's baggage. I got baggage for days. You have no idea how much baggage I've got. Listen, welcome to the club. We all got baggage. We all got baggage. In fact, some people have made this treasured little collection. You hoard your baggage like smog on his treasure. <laughs> my precious. Oh God, these are my treasures. Some of, us, some of us hold so tightly to our baggage, it becomes our identity. It's like, well, I guess it's just, this, is just what, this is just who I am. It's not who you are, sucker. Listen, you're a child of the living God. You're a daughter of the king. So maybe you need to stand up and go, this stuff doesn't exactly fit me anymore. Maybe you need to take off some of the garments of insecurity. Maybe you need to take off some of the trappings of careerism and trying to make it to the top so you can finally feel good about yourself. I think it was Thomas Merton said that some of us spend our entire lives climbing a ladder and get to the top and realize it's leaning against the wrong dadgum house. I added the dadgum part. He was a Catholic monk from somewhere. He probably would have said dadgum. But that's just me, the gospel, the redneck gospel, according to Tommy. Well, where was I? Smog, Gollum, none of that in the notes. Oh, truth and lies. You can only lay aside your baggage and remove the garments of appearances when you've received your identity from God and hear his good words over your life. The truth has to replace the lie. I know that there are three lies that every person faces. I just don't know what, two, what one of them is. One of them is the, is, is the statement that, that you won't have enough. That's a lie. That's a lie. But you won't have enough drives a lot of your striving. The second one is you're not enough. And that's a lie. And that drives your need for approval in all kinds of relationship junk. The third one has something to do with power. And I don't know what that lie is yet. But it causes you to forsake servanthood and worship of God for just powering up. I'm going to work on that one this fall. I don't know exactly what it is yet, but I know that whatever the lies are that you face, that truth has to replace the lie. And that truth only comes from receiving your identity from God, through reading scripture, through prayer, through sitting with others who are learning to have their feet washed by Jesus. Well, there's so much more that could be said by you and by me, and I suppose that all the church services in the world could not contain the volumes of words that we would say, where we to say everything that needs to be said, half as good as it needs to be said. But I want to say one more thing to you before we go. And it's a story about my boy, Seth. Seth, you're still over there, right? You're still awake? Good. Okay. So Seth is nine. And I've got lots of stories where I've sensed God's presence with my daughter. But one happened this week where I sensed God's presence with my son. We were out in my one-person kayak in the Choctahatchee Bay, and we're going to try and catch a redfish. And he's sitting in the back of this one-person kayak on the back of the bait bucket, just trying to stay upright, high, and dry. 
And so at one point, it was on the second or third dock. I pitched an LY up underneath the dock, popping cork, about an 18-inch leader on the front of that thing. It goes under, set the hook, circle hook, got him, got him up, got him out. He was fighting really good. He was fighting way out of his weight class, I'll tell you that much. I think it's because I was sitting down a little kayak and not standing up on a boat. Felt way bigger than what he was, right? I thought, this is mid-20s, upper-20s redfish. And I finally got him out from the pylons, and I handed it to Seth, and Seth reels that thing in, gets him in. I grab him. He was 17, 18 inches, something like that. And Seth says, Dad, let's take a picture. I said, oh, son, we'll take a, my, my iPhone's buried somewhere in a dry box. We'll take a picture on the next one. Well, we didn't catch another one. But we did go a few hundred year, more yards uh, up and fish some more docks and got kind of to the end of it. And Seth's like, Dad, before we, you know, on the way back somewhere, can we go look for, um, what do you call those things, arrowheads? I said, yeah, man, we'll go look for arrowheads. And we had several hundred yards to get back. He said, could I paddle back? It's like, sure, buddy, you can paddle back. So I, I told him, I said, I'll just pull up on the shore and you can get up in the front and I'll get in the back. He's like, no, I just want to sit in your lap. I said, all right, man. So he sits in my lap and here he is, he's leaned back against me. I'm his seat. He's leaned back against me. He's got a little life jacket on, his little wide brim hat, his little flaming red hair coming out from up underneath that thing. He's just cute as a, you know. And so he's got the paddle in his hands and he's going like this. And I think his right arm stronger than his left arm because we started going a little bit like this. And then he, he got it corrected and he got it going back the right way. And we went from maybe 50, 60 yards or something like that. He said, Dad, Dad, I'm getting a little tired. Could you help me? I said, okay, man. So I put my hands right beside him. It was a long way for a nine-year-old to paddle. I was really impressed. I got my hands right beside him, and I started paddling with him. And he goes, hey, this is a lot easier. We're doing good. I said, yeah, buddy, we're, we're doing good. He's, he's like, Dad, this is, this is great. And he's just sitting there paddling. And it was about that time that... You know, it wasn't the Jordan River, and I didn't see the sky open, and the, there were seagulls, but no doves. But I think I heard a voice somewhere in my inner ear that said something like, you know, son, uh, you know, I, I want to help you, too. And then we paddled a little bit longer, and I heard something like from a song, whenever you get tired of living according to human effort, the life of divine promise is always waiting. Some of us look at the future of our lives and we're like, I've got so far to go and I don't know if I have the strength for it. And at that point in time, I think you just have to say, hey, Dad, could you, could you help me? And you don't know what it does to a father's heart for a son or a daughter to say, hey, Dad, could you help me? You don't want to do it for him, you want to do it with him. You don't want to do it for him, you want to do it with him. And maybe you're just striving as hard as you can and what you don't realize is God's like, ah, this could be so much more fun. Like, I'm ready to have so much fun. Maybe your God's all just broody and constipated. <laughs> ah, lightning bolts. Kill, kill, sin, ah. My God's, my God's just laughing. My God's just smiling. My God's just love. And I think that your God like Seth's dad, just wants to put his hands by yours and say, let's do this together. So Seth, you'll probably, you probably won't remember that moment in 10 years. You probably won't remember that moment. And I just want to say to all of the guys in the room, that moment happened. And there are going to be a lot of moments that people don't see. And there are going to be a lot of moments that go unnoticed. There are going to be a lot of moments where you're tired and you feel like giving up. Be a lot of moments where you get up and you go to work even though you don't want to. There will be a lot of moments that nobody's going to write them down. But if they were to be written down, 
not even all the volumes in the world, could contain the things that God sees that you do. And so on this Father's Day, I hope that you know your heavenly Father loves you and sees you. In the same words that he said about Jesus, he says it about you. As Pastor Luke comes, I'll leave you with a final thought. That you don't do what you do, so that somebody will write it down. You do what you do, hoping it doesn't get noticed at all. But the lives that are going to be transformed through your life, those are the words that are going to be spoken for years and years and years. So you have steaks to grill. It's going to be a good day. I hope that today is a day where you feel valued and honored and noticed. And I also hope that for all of the women in the room as well, that I want you to hear me loud and clear. This message is not just for guys. This is a message of love and affirmation that your heavenly father sees you and loves you and blesses you. Amen. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to you. And I hope that it's a good one. Amen.